Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today we have a, a really fun analysis episode. Uh, Chris Higgins is back. And today we're going to talk about uh, Windows 95, command line computing, who is the Microsoft of tech today, and how and why the Matrix is the perfect hacker slash internet movie. Uh, when we were recording this, we promised a bunch of things that would be in the show notes, but sadly we didn't write them down. So if you check the show notes, that's what I remember of the conversation. If there are other things that I forgot, uh, get in touch with me over email or Twitter, and uh, I'll add them in for later people to download. Enjoy this conversation with Chris Higgins. So this is why I'm in the office again. <laughs> And and there have been disasters recording in this office. Sadly, um, oh, I've heard them. Oh yeah, yeah. The the uh, the Winamp guy, mm -hmm. uh, J Justin Frankel, was terrible. Uh, he wasn't terrible. It was <laughs> the conditions were terrible. Yeah, it was the echoing off all the glass or metal or whatever you had. Right, there. and and he was kind of a low talker. So then it was hard for me to adjust the levels. You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to gain it up so that I can hear what he's saying. And what I really needed was. You know, a mic that I pinned to his to his shirt or something, which I which I don't have, but I should probably invest in. Mm -hmm. um, but so th the problem is that little Penny uh, is, I don't know, what, 15, 16 months old at this point. So she's totally walking, totally mobile. Mm -hmm. And even as recently as three months ago, you know, I could still say to Penny and, and her mom, I've, I've got to record this for about an hour, go in the back room and, and hang out for a while. <laughs> That's totally that, that that's a non-starter now, and you've you've seen our apartment like um, you know I have that little office cove there, but um, you know she would just be running around the house, and then unfortunately today it's sort of monsoon season here in New York City, so I couldn't say okay go to the park for an hour, right? So not the <laughs> not the best uh, recording situation today, but much better than having a. A one and a half year old running, screaming up and down the hallway, and and you know reverberating everywhere. So. so, did you pack up your mic and all your stuff and just carry it on the subway, or how did yeah, that no. Um, well, I have a backpack that that is sort of like a, a, a modified photographer's backpack. Um, so it, uh -huh. it has all these pockets that you know the mic fits in it, and it's you know it's cushioned and all this stuff. And and then yeah, I I have the porta the porta booth. Uh, who is this mm -hmm. guy? Harlan Hogan's porta booth. <laughs> so yeah, you just disassemble that, fold it up, and I put it in a bag, and yeah. I, I did look like a bag person on, on the train coming over here, but, uh, so, um, Hey man, hey. long time, no talk. You, yeah. You've had a, you've had a busy summer. It sounds like you would think so. Um, or you think I've just been, I dropped off the face of the earth and stopped writing or something, but yeah, it's been a really, uh, <laughs> really busy time. And it's one of those things where I think in retrospect, like I'm getting that itchy thing of, I haven't released anything in mm -hmm. six months or nine months or some number like that. Um, and all of it is pointing towards early next year, which is not soon enough for me. Um, and I'm working on four documentaries right now, some of which wow. kind of can't be talked about and others are can mm -hmm. definitely be talked about. Mm -hmm. So I have suddenly found myself transformed from a full-time writer to a full-time 
um, documentary creator. So I'm shooting, I'm traveling, I'm interviewing people, and I'm also writing blogs all the time. And boy, yeah. Are, uh, this is obviously inside between us, but are, are any of those projects with Adam? Um, ish. The, the Tetris documentary has Adam involved as a producer. Uh-huh. Um, so he's there and stuff. And we're about to have another Tetris uh, tournament. We're about to hit like the one year where I thought that would be done. Like my Tetris mm-hmm. movie would be mm-hmm. done. Oh, no, mm-hmm. it's not. Oh, no. You know, um, but it's getting there. And he's uh, been very helpful in steering me through the mistakes that I was told not to make and went ahead and made. And all that kind of crap. Well, um, if, if the listeners yeah. are not aware, uh, competitive Tetris is actually a thing. Um, a friend of ours, Adam Cornelius, a few years ago did a documentary on it called The Ecstasy of Order. Um, and you you guys have been involved even running in the, the tournaments and stuff for several years, right? Yeah, competitive Tetris, and even in this case, specifically competitive Tetris using um, 25-year-old Nintendo hardware. So a very specific niche within the overall uh, niche of competitive Tetris. Uh, yeah, there's a there's an annual uh, tournament that's in Portland, Oregon, and now I'm going to be the head ref, I guess. I think I was head ref a couple of years ago, and that's what I, led to me to write my first article about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, now the thing is, there will be two in-depth documentaries about this very specific and very small subculture, and I think that's great. It's just a little bit strange when you try to explain it to people like when i go to hair, get a haircut they say what did you work on all day and i'm like well <laughs> uh competitive tetris and they say tell me more and i just you know i go on the whole thing about yes they plug in the nintendo controller and they play the nintendo and then they do this all the time it's a, I mean, an amazing achievement that a lot of people have gotten very very good at this game that is 30 years old and they keep going back kind of kind of like a platonic ideal of a game too but um you know what um well we we can talk about some of your other projects um uh, at the end here but one of the things aside from the fact that i hadn't spoken to you in so long that prompted me uh to want to talk to you again was actually portland centric Mm -hmm. um so um I apparently need to attend XOXO Fest at some point. It sounds like it's 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 the new awesome festival or something. That would be wise. Yeah, I would say that that is uh, a place to be. And mm-hmm. I sort of lucked into it the first year. Um, it was Andy Bayo and Andy McMillan. Andy Bayo is a Portland guy. Andy McMillan was, <clears throat> excuse me, I think he was in Northern Ireland somewhere. But he had done um, conferences and they decided to make a Portland conference kind of like a festival for the arts, for independent, mm-hmm. you know, people who have maintained their independence and released something, whether it's music or film or code or made a company. So, like indie creators, basically. Yeah. And I, it's sort of, un, it's ambiguous where the line is, right? Because you'll have people who have long careers and have worked for corporations and stuff. And then you'll have people who are, you know, like Aaron McKeon of Wordnick, um, who kind of make their own stuff and are kind of partially... Anyway, it's all kinds of different independent people. You have a lot of musicians, too, who get up there and kind of say, well, here's how I make my living. Shrug, and then let it all out. Um, game designers who get up there and say, here's how it's working or not. Uh, and it's a combination of topics, like people who actually present, they give little 20-minute things, which end up on YouTube, so you're going to get to see all that stuff. Uh, that's the main program of the weekend, but then there's all this surrounding stuff, kind of festival mm-hmm. stuff. So music events, um, live podcast tapings, 
all sorts of not really uh, there's a rule against panel discussions but there was a panel discussion this year of the suck.com people uh, right which yeah. is what we want to talk about well i'm unfortunately i feel like i'm going to be ill prepared to actually say much about that aside from what i sure. observed but it will be right. a very naive view of it which is kind of cool well no actually it's it's what you observed that i'm curious about because um so uh if 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 you are a regular listener of the show i don't know what episode it would be but um uh i think it was you know the title was maybe big media's big web adventure we talked about pathfinder and and wired and and all this stuff and among in in that episode one of the the big pioneering uh, sites was suck.com uh which was founded by uh joey anuff or anuff i don't know how you say his name um and carl stedman and uh, both of whom i i tried to obviously um uh, get for the show to interview about about suck um it turned out that uh owen thomas was my was able to uh, talk to me a lot about it because he was involved uh, with Hotwired at the time and Suck and things like that. So apparently at XOXO Fest, um, th- th- uh, both of them showed up, uh, Joey and Carl. And and the funny thing about it is is that um, <clears throat> Owen had told me that at least one of them, but I, I got the impression both of them had kind of uh, completely gone off the grid. <laughs> I, I I don't remember exactly his wording, but essentially he told me, yeah, good luck uh, getting in touch with them. So it was surprising and thrilling to see that that they actually did participate in this in this panel discussion to talk about suck. Um, and so I'm curious to know, did you get that impression that they were uh, maybe a bit uh, <laughs> a, 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 a bit surprised to be talking about this, a bit annoyed to be talking? I'm just curious yes. the impression about them. Well, I got several things out of it. Um, one thing to clarify, there were actually two uh, panels. Mm. So one of them, like the way that this thing works, people say, people think it's a tech conference or they think it's like South by Southwest. And I don't know. I've never been to South by Southwest, but I've been to a lot of tech conferences. So you have to understand, there was actually an event programmed during the day, like when people are typically giving kind of a how I did my thing or here's an inspirational thought or whatever, like some a talk like that. There was a panel stuck in that programming that was not just uh, Joey and Carl. In fact, Owen might have been on that. Do you want me to look this up right now? Uh, no, but uh, I yeah. will link. I will link to both of those things in the show notes because I think you found the links to like <clears throat> transcripts of it or maybe even the YouTube videos up at this point or something. I don't know, but I, I will yeah. link to that. So uh, check yeah, the show notes. The video's not up yet, but I have photos of all this stuff. But anyway, there was a panel that involved them and uh, two women whose names I forget. Uh, but it was apparently the the main you know nucleus of the site. And so that was on Saturday or maybe Sunday. And that was the whole group together. Mm-hmm. And that was freewheeling and kind of friendly and involved a couch and two sort of end chairs. Um, so in that one, everybody, there was a, a line between whether it was all a joke or whether it was actually kind of serious. And I think it was probably both that they all hated each other mm-hmm. and really hadn't spoken in 15 years, but clearly they had. Uh, and so you, it, there was a lot of purposeful ambiguity about what the hell was going on with these people. Like, were they, to what extent were they alienated from each other mm. uh, as a group? And it was funny and odd. And you could kind of tell the suck.com fans in the audience because they would laugh at stuff that was a callback to the actual reality of suck. 
Right, the memes maybe that, that Suck was famous for at the time and the yeah. inside jokes and stuff, yeah. Well, and also just talking about how they worked kind of as a company. Like, you mm, know, mm-hmm, we decided mm-hmm. to make these cartoons, and so here's the one who drew all the cartoons. And right. they'd say, okay, what's, what, remember your process for drawing the cartoons? And she'd say something like, yeah, I, you know, I, I did X, Y, Z to draw the cartoons, and I would walk around bugging people until they would do something funny, and then I would write it down. You know, you would just see them. It was, like, fun to watch people reminisce about previous careers and also how much or how little money they had made uh, either at Suck or at all their subsequent things that... Right, I believe I believe one of the women was probably Anna Marie Cox, who mm-hmm. more famously as Wong Ket, um is a real blogging pioneer, but I know she was involved. And um, Heather Haverleski, I think maybe might have been... I know she was involved too, but anyway, so go, go on. Yeah, so at that panel, which was, again, later in the weekend, because this thing starts on a Thursday and ends on mm-hmm. a Sunday night. So this was probably on Sunday, I forget. Point is large group of people five people on stage and the only other thing that was like this that we've seen before at an xoxo event which was in 2013 i want to say was when glenn fleischman interviewed uh the boing boing group Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. jenny and Corey and all those people yeah um and it was sort of that was again basically a panel of people who've been working together for a long time the thing is that they still work together but they're kind of an autonomous set of people who happen to some of them live in the same place and all that jazz. So, but the vibe for this one was there was no moderator. Uh, It was just kind of them moderating their own rambling reminiscence of what suck.com was. And that was pretty entertaining uh, and kind of more normal because there was more content to be had in having five people remember an event and pipe up and say, oh, right. Remember when this happened? And they would say, yeah, 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 that I remember that. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, several nights earlier, um, I think this was Friday night, there was this event, you know, in between other podcast tapings, which was basically, I don't know if it was recorded. I don't know if it'll be on YouTube. What it was, was either a, profuse, a piece of performance art that I didn't quite understand, <laughs> or it was literally, now I'm going to back up. Do you know? So it's Joey and Carl, right? Right, right. Do you know which one has kind of the longer flat hair and which one kind of looks older? No, I don't because the only pictures that I, you know, would have seen of them were from 1995 vintage. So Right. When they looked the very basically very similar and kind of they're in wired, you know, right. being, being awesome. Well, the point is it's it starts out with them saying that they each have an obsession with um over retrieving and storing data Hmm. like stuff like one of them saying you know i've downloaded all of the billboard number one singles ever Hmm. and the other one saying well yeah so have i i have i get torrents too and the first guy saying no 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 but see i didn't just download them like i learned about them Hmm. and (laughs) it's effectively one guy who's obsessed with over documentation telling another guy who is probably equally obsessed with some kind of acquisition you know that thing of being like i have every episode of... right a, a completist yeah yeah uh just going through this thing and showing his slideshow to the annoyance of his former colleague like the whole hmm. thing was annoying the other guy and and trying to tell him why it was important year by year so it's literally like okay so in 2001 i became obsessed with learning everything i could about doo-wop Mm, mm-hmm. You know, and then just trying to give the audience a little bit of like it would start by giving some information about doo-wop, but then it would go completely off the rails into the other guy being annoyed by the whole concept and saying, you don't know anything about doo-wop. 
you know, what are you talking about? Did you actually research doo-wop? And the first guy is saying, well, yeah, no, I got a book and here's a picture of the book that I learned all the stuff about why doo-wop was important and the origins of doo-wop. And, you know, and there's this, <clears throat> here's a great record that we should definitely look into. And okay, then, yeah. that's interesting to me because that does sound like some sort of a performance. Right. <laughs> and it, so wait, because I haven't been to the festival, is that something that is done? I mean, maybe it sounds like there's maybe comedy occasionally, there's podcasts recorded, but... Are there performance events at, at this? At this, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, hmm. not usually. It's unambiguous that it's a performance because it's mm-hmm. a podcast mm-hmm. of people. Um, oh man, there was one that was really unexpected and good, and I forget the name of the podcast. But it, the the gist is, there's a guy who falls through like a transdimensional warp hole behind a Burger King and ends up in this other universe where he has a, a leaky. Uh, low quality Wi-Fi connection to the mm-hmm. real world, mm-hmm. and his best friends are like a badger and a wizard. And so they're standing up on stage, and there's a guy in a kind of a a weasel costume and a guy in a wizard costume, and they're very clearly doing a comedy performance. Or the guys of You Look Nice Today did a podcast recording, right? Right. A live You Look Nice Today, which was uh-huh. amazing. Yeah. Um, so those were unambiguous, and it's right. it's very common for there to be unambiguous humor. It's also fairly common for there to be you know, you have to really figure out what's going on to find out whether the thing that's happening is is humor. Like Darius, uh, I think his name is Kazumi or Kazami, uh, a couple of years ago did a thing called How I Won the Lottery, mm-hmm. which just just Google it. Mm-hmm. Just go just go to the show notes right now and watch Darius talk about How I Won the Lottery, which is, mm-hmm. I won't say anything more about it, but just a brilliant talk. Um, but the point but- is, this was completely ambiguous to the point that I looked around to other people in the audience who many of whom were leaving, which is uh-huh. very unusual for this kind of thing. Yeah. Because you've signed up for 20 minutes or 40 minutes of something. And people, some people were super into it. I think they were like down in the front row. I think Christina might have been at this thing. Christina mm-hmm, Warren. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. she seemed into it. And a lot of people, as I, as I walked out of this, because there was a break later, like as it ended and we all kind of left, there was this overarching question of what was that? And why why, right, why did we sit it, through that? It, it sounds almost like a Andy Kaufman sort of anti-comedy thing, um, you know, daring mm-hmm. the audience to to endure. And so the reason that I almost, you know, I, I hope I'm not being too ungenerous to, to them, but I almost, the reason I jumped to thinking that that's what happened is that was kind of the whole vibe of suck in the sense that it was very much a Gen X sort of F the man, yes, you know, middle finger at any sort of pretension. And, and so, as I said in that, in that episode, if you listen to it, like you, like literally the whole gawker, um, you know, snarky vibe of blogging that, that came to prominence in the two thousands, they basically just cribbed um, the, <laughs> the, the attitude um, of suck. And so I, 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 the reason that I, I, I jumped to that conclusion that, oh, they were doing some sort of a performance thing is because I feel like if they're, if they're still the same kind of guys <laughs> with the same mm-hmm. sort of attitude that they would be, they would have the attitude that, oh yeah, these stupid conferences that people pay all this money for, that's a bunch of BS. Like, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I feel at this point, like it was clearly, a performance of some kind, but the what the intent was is ambiguous. Maybe that's kind of the point, uh, because the the PowerPoint or whatever it was was not necessarily useful. 
<laughs> the mm-hmm. discussion mm-hmm. was genuine in that these guys were trying to it was very unusual. Let's just put it that way. It was a very unusual vibe. And a lot of people were kind of actively pissed off, kind of like a, uh, you know, like a Kaufman performance where people were just that annoyed that they would leave. Uh, hmm. But then other people were laughing directly with it. And I was in this nether zone where I was up in the balcony in the in the center front because I was shooting photos of the whole thing. And I have photos of this thing, by the way. Um just kind of trying to figure out, like, yeah, you know, I kind of, I kind of remember Suck.com. That was definitely a thing. I don't really remember these guys. It's been a long time, and I, f- <laughs> and just trying to sit with the ambiguity of it for a long time. Mm-hmm. It did seem like there was a pattern where the one guy would try to explain his enthusiasm for something, and the other one would effectively negate that enthusiasm. Right. Right. And that was it. There's no need for anything but them to express enthusiasm and then the other one would just negate it or try to, in some cases, one-up it and then negate the whole idea of having the enthusiasm to begin with and then they would move on to the next slide. And the slides were uh, poorly designed is the wrong word, just oddly designed. Mm. Um, As if they were intended to convey information, but they didn't and they were very rarely explained or referenced even though a big show was put into, like, now let's advance to the next slide. This is very important. <laughs> I think they went way over time, too. I think they went, like, 15 minutes over, which is kind of a lot when you have but, another you know, 10 things. I, yeah. I, I kind of want this to be true now because, you know, listen, I love TED Talks as much as the next guy. I love attending, you know, festivals and, and you know, everyone loves to debate is South by Southwest. Oh, it's so over now, you know. Right. But certainly uh, these the, <laughs> these important talks that people hold where – this next 10 minute presentation is going to change the way you look at the world and blow your mind. Like certainly that's something that is ripe for people to, uh, to take down a peg or two. So if it, I want that to have been what they were doing, <laughs> I want, I, yeah. cause I really want, uh, you know, I, I, guys, I hope you're still out there with your middle, middle finger out <laughs> to the world <laughs> because that's what suck was. And, and if, if they're still, if they're still banging on, and true, true to that vision, then man, that'd be great. And guys, if you're out there, please come on the podcast. I want to talk to you. Yeah, and one more thought, which we could just chop out of this, is it felt like the old web, which I mean, the old web was actually present at this thing to mm. some extent, although you know, not in the form of actual, you know, the entire Suck.com crew. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. mostly it was people who had come up in the last maybe five to eight years and done something with a, a fancy new, like a new, new, new business model kind of deal. In a way, this was like, by the way, we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, so let's just express our view of this whole thing. It did it did push me back into the 90s. That's what it felt like. Well, let, let me let me push you back in the 90s again, because that's kind of what we're you and I are really good at doing. Oh, let's. Uh, so you mentioned uh, Glenn Fleischman, and, and um, there's a great recent uh, podcast, uh, a, a, an episode of, um, is it The Incomparable or The Incomparable? I don't know what they... The Incomparable. It's J- yeah. Incomparable, yeah. It's, it's Jason Snell's podcast, um, and they were on there, and they, they did a, um, an episode called um, Passwords Are Wrong Man, where they, they talk about, like, um, you know, um, sort of the canon of tech hacker books like literally <laughs> hackers uh soul of a new machine by tracy kidder um um uh, micro by uh douglas copeland yeah um and the cuckoo's egg maybe yeah cliff stole yeah cuckoo's egg was one of them right yeah um and so 
they that happened and also you know last month there or the month before there was uh, it, it wasn't as big a deal as i thought it would be but the the 20th anniversary of windows 95 and so all of this has been swirling together i i am <sighs> three times he's canceled on me now but i have a huge microsoft guy that's like literally my dream microsoft guy aside from bill gates or or steve Ballmer. um so i've been researching back microsoft again recently and I've been thinking specifically about Windows 95, and help me remember. Uh-huh. I remember that there was hype around Windows 95, but a lot of the a lot of the 20th anniversary press was like, "Well, this was like a, a new iPhone event, but you know, 20 years ago." You know, I remember there being a lot of hype around the launch of Windows 95. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, you know, the video of people supposedly lining up and, and purchasing it at midnight and stuff. But um, I don't remember it being <laughs> the launch of a new iPhone. Do, do you have any memories of, of Windows 95 launching? And uh, were you a Mac user or Windows user at that point? Do you, what do you remember about that? Yeah, I was a Windows 3.1 for work groups or whatever user at that time. And I agree with you because I've actually covered the same thing for Mental Floss, which is... You know, we're getting we're getting into a lot of 25th and 30th anniversaries of a lot of stuff. And looking at that in 20th, whatever, like looking at the coverage of Windows 95, it seems like either because I was in Southwest Florida and there was nothing going on there in general mm-hmm. or because nothing really happened there. Uh, it was a non-event. Like Windows 95 was something where I remember reading an article or two about it in a computer magazine and thinking, oh, that's nice. That'll be great, you know? Right. Like, I, yeah, right. I look exactly. forward to having this OS. Exactly. I don't know who I'm going to pirate it from yet, but probably my dad, because he'll get it at work or something. You know, and that was the extent of it. I don't recall... I do recall hearing that the Rolling Stones had performed at something somewhere, mm-hmm. and Start Me Up was used, and that was Right. Something. I remember that, and I also remember... It was definitely like, you know, if if... Back in the day, if you were one of those people that would tune into the nightly news at 6.30 at night, mm-hmm. it was definitely like the second or third story of the day. So it was and, – and listen, you know, when you when you read the history and you research this stuff, I mean, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, <laughs> it better have been at least a headline. I'm sure, I'm sure it made newspaper headlines and things like that. Um, and yeah, you know, they, they had Jay Leno, um, MC, the launch event. They had um, that famous, um, uh, if, if you're not aware of this, you need to Google this or, or YouTube search this right now. The cast of Friends oh, yeah. was paid, I don't know how much amount of money, to do a an intro video, like almost a how-to. This These are all the cool things you can do <laughs> with Windows 95. So believe me, they tried their best to make it a big event, but I don't remember there being like rabid fan. I don't remember like going to school and like all my nerd friends being like, oh my God, I got Windows 95 last night. I stayed up all night. I don't remember <laughs> that at all. Right. No, what I, what I remember was a non-event. Like it didn't, I, I knew the kids who would have stayed up all night to go get a thing and they didn't do that for that. Um, now, again, I was geographically in a eh, relatively remote part of the U.S., but we did stuff. You know, we would go out for movies. We'd do, like, the midnight premiere of movies, but we were mm-hmm. total mm-hmm. dorks. I mean, to us, having a new OS for our computer was a was a big deal, but that this wasn't. And I was aware, like, in retrospect, I look at it, 
And it feels as if Microsoft tried pretty hard to make a huge cultural event and moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And from my perspective, just it didn't happen, I guess, which is fine. Uh, I mean, it happened, clearly. They did release the OS, but it wasn't the kind of um, seemingly self-generated interest that you get with an iPhone launch. Right. Well, and maybe that that just wasn't the era for it. You know, we we do live in an era where the nerds have taken over the universe, and, mm-hmm. and yeah, um, you know, uh, CEOs of tech companies are the new rock stars and things like that. And 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 your 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 phone is more sexy than than the first car, you know, to to a sixteen year old. But um, I don't know. Um, I actually, you know, because I've done stuff for like the the 20th anniversary of of Amazon, 20th anniversary of Yahoo, 20th anniversary, obviously, of Netscape and things like that. But I didn't do anything on on Windows 95 because it it, it kind of, yes, I will, when you you do the research on it, you can admit, and it's funny to look back at it now, you have to in retrospect, like, yes, that was the time when Microsoft was everything, was everything literally the tech industry it, it you know the computer industry software industry it was everything mm-hmm. and and windows 95 really represents their their crowning achievement their high watermark but that's the funny thing is that it is their kind of high watermark and and for 10 years after that you know they basically they continued to ride that monopoly of of 90 95% market share of of all software platforms um but it's so funny you know, as I'm, you know, doing the research of, of, I'm starting to get into when they get sued by the government and stuff. And, you know, so Windows 95 happens in late 1995. It was supposed to come out originally in 1993. It comes out in late 95. Um, five years later, Bill Gates is, leaves the, the day-to-day operations of Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Um, within five years, they're, they're sued by the government. They kind of get a, 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 a sort of severe slap on the wrist, but a slap on the wrist, but it, it was enough to maybe, um, I don't know, take the, take the fire out of them. And so it's weird when you think of windows 95, it feel, it felt to me like a non event, not a non event, but not as big as people make it out to be. And then now when you look back on it historically, um, yeah, it was, it's more interesting now as their high watermark. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, it it felt like the the solidification of the ubiquity of Microsoft, which is really boring, right? Because mm-hmm. ubiquity mm-hmm. is super boring because nothing happened aside from the screen looked different now. And I recall my big questions about that OS being things like, "Can I get back to a DOS prompt?" and like, "Is this a shell right. over DOS or that's a whole funny?" New I thing? I, I yeah. thought of that too. I made a note of that that um, you know because I used I used Windows three point one also, but all, remember that was just running on top of you. You were still using a DOS machine. It was just a layer that they a cute layer they had put. You could get back to the to the command line anytime you wanted. Yeah. And that was always the reason why I was a Windows kid and not a Mac kid is because I actually enjoyed the ability to go to the C prompt and do whatever crazy shit I wanted to, do. you know, right. get in, get into the weeds. And so I always liked that. So maybe even, you know, maybe at the time I would have felt like, oh, this is sort of a step backwards. They're turning it into Macs, which, you know, again, now you would say, oh, that was <laughs> such a positive thing. They finally caught up to the Mac. But as a kid that that really loved the command line, <laughs> yeah, really loved the C prompt. I, I I think I can even remember being like, yeah, well, I guess I can't do all the all the great stuff I used to do uh, when I could just hack into DOS. But they gave you new stuff like the registry, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like that, mm-hmm. I don't think that really existed prior to that. I I assume, mm-hmm. but it gave you these new uh, awful things that you had to do to rebuild your PC every every year or so. Mm-hmm. There's sort of seasonal cleaning of reinstalling everything and trying to figure out what what was wrong. And I, you know, I got into that that lore pretty deeply. I got into Windows NT gosh, three, five, one or four mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the, in the coming years after that. But I recall being very proud of my ability to do things like, you know, mess with my auto exact bat and my config assist because you had to, to right. like, you know, certain games would not run unless they had exactly. access to memory in certain exactly. ways. And I also ran a weird variant of DOS, which was digital research. Uh, it was DR DOS instead of MS DOS, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. which there was no reason to run it. I mean, I'll just put it out there. Like it was the only reason to run that was to say, I am a better nerd than my friends who are also nerds dude i you know what i'm not it's been so long since i researched this but dr dos if i if memory serves correctly was one of the early instances that made the government start to kind of look at microsoft like the the dirty things they did to dr dos and mm-hmm. i could get i might be completely wrong about this because again it was it was almost two years ago that i was deep in the weeds with microsoft but yeah so wait because that was like that was some other company's version of dos yeah. Because there, there were all these different versions of DOS originally. Microsoft made different. There was the, the version they made for IBM, the, for for different uh, OEMs, and um, then Compaq started using the MS DOS, just their 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 plain vanilla version. And then when that, and that sort of became okay. Well, everyone's just going to instead of being PC DOS, everyone right. just uses MS DOS. So. Right. Well, yeah. It was in what it struck me as just as a you know, as a user at the time was, well, okay, so if this is kind of an interoperable system, if the whole point of the PC versus something like a Mac is that you can take off-the-shelf components and you can kind of reverse engineer things and make them just work, then you can take your DOS and reverse engineer that and make that just work. And I honestly don't recall why DR-DOS was impressive or useful, except I think it had some kind of memory management thing that was supposedly better. But like many things in those days, that belief was probably based on something somebody told me one time and if it was somebody i felt was reliable or better than me at computers i just took it on board and said well i'm going to use dr dos until they take it away from me you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah that was just an example of um i think windows 95 if i recall correctly it it sort of just took over like you didn't get to have dr dos anymore and that was probably fine i think at that point i didn't really need the command line as much as i felt that i did and that was the beginning of that kind of change and it was such an interesting thing to go from that moment of f- having a command line that I was, I felt that I had some skills with, uh-huh. and then very shortly thereafter being exposed to Unix in college and being mm. like, oh, mm. look at this, a real command line, like a grown-up command line, and then having that be a thing that I did a lot, and then getting into the Mac. This is the Mac pre-OS 10, so you have like Mac OS 8 and 7 and 9 and stuff, which were, you know, there was no command line to be had. But then finally coming full circle to having, you know, a Unix-based Mac was, that's when you knew you had won. You know, mm-hmm. like we had won mm-hmm. so hard that we had all the possible things. Right, after they bought Next and, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, created OS ten or, well, it wasn't first OS ten. Uh, listen, I, I don't want to embarrass myself because I don't know uh, Apple history at all. So. Oh, Brian, I'll tell you all about it <laughs> some other day. We're right. Well, you know what? Um, do you know who Benedict Evans is? Um, mm, no. He works uh, – I don't know if he's a partner, but he's he's with Andreessen Horowitz. Um, he, he, he's on their excellent podcast very often. 
Uh, he is one of the greatest follows on Twitter because he's always tweeting data points and sometimes you know charts and 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 data that that you know their their research arm does about about web stuff and um he he had a tweet a couple of weeks ago that was great where he said you know what's funny is that maybe it, it, it might turn out that the google search field might be the last command line in existence you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, because that's how computers before before mice and windows and things and the whole uh, GUI interface took over. All of computing for about 50 years was, all right, there's a, there's a command line, a blinking cursor, and you have to type in what you want it to do. And essentially, that's what the Google search still is. Mm-hmm. And, and he's kind of right. Like, where else is there? Even ATMs are now touchscreens. Like, where else is there a command line in, in, in any computing? Yeah, it's a solid point. And also, there is a bunch of stuff you can do in Google and other mm-hmm. search engines too, but like notably Google because I use a lot of Google. Like, one of the things I use every day is the site syntax. So you can type site colon and then the URL of some domain. Let's say in my case, mentalfloss.com because I have to, I write every day for this thing. And so I want to search my own, this domain on which I've written thousands of things. And then I search for keywords and stuff. You can also search by like, uh, date ranges and stuff right right by adding operators so basically i want to know like have has anybody here maybe possibly me because i forgot about it because it was eight years ago because like, we covered this topic and if we have you know for example when i posted the thing with um i feel like it was chandler and Mo- monica, monica? No. or, well, or was one, it both the, the two one dudes was, no, no it one was of the them lady. had to be a woman yeah yeah and maybe it was, it was um, phoebe I don't. I never watched the show. I'm going to admit that right now. I actually never watched that show. And that's crazy. First of all, that's crazy. To be I know. the age you are, that's crazy. Did you see the New York Times article that just this week about how apparently teens have are embracing uh, because it's on Netflix now are embracing Friends and it's having this <laughs> this cultural moment. <laughs> And and they were contrasting it to like you know the the Sex and the City version of of the mm, of living in New York yeah. and the and the girls version of living in New York and it's and and I can totally see that but this is such an aside I can totally yeah. see friends having another moment because it is sort of and again I you can't comment because you haven't watched that much of it but <laughs> it is even more than Seinfeld I feel like it's maybe more of a um, universal comedy. Where you know you can go back to Three Stooges, or you can go back. I, I can't think off the top of my head of another uh, a comedy that's that's um, sort of uh, evergreen. But I can totally see that even well, even a seventeen year old today would laugh their ass off at Friends episodes. Yeah, I think for me the the analog would be Laverne and Shirley, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I honestly I forget what city they were in. I mean, was that maybe Milwaukee? Yeah, right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're you know they're going to the bottling factory and stuff. And it's would, def- definitely Milwaukee. Yeah, and I would watch that and just think, this is from an era a little bit before mine, but it's on the TV and I'll watch it and I kind of understand roughly who these characters are. But yeah, you you do that. I do this thing a lot. This has become one of my as I kind of get more and more gray, sort of my uh, looking at where I am relative to the kids these days. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we had like a two year old and a five year old over the other day. And I looked at these kids and I'm like, Whoa, mm. these are both post iPhone kids. Oh yeah. 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 And they're walking up to the TV set and trying to press it, you know, right, it doesn't right. do anything. And, and so I'm like, wow. Cause I thought, you know, we have a 13 year old niece who's like, she's post nine 11 for one right, thing. Right. But we share a lot of culture, but mm. you know, a three or two or three year old today 
we share like i'm aware vaguely of what culture that kid is you know because i'm seeing you know whatever their parents tell mm-hmm, the kid mm-hmm. but their computing ability is so interesting to watch because i'm like huh because the thing is you and i had a computing culture where we sat down in front of a machine with a little prompt a little carrot that said do something and you would sort of have to you would have to use some external source other than the computer itself to well, tell you well, how to what, do something right what was the word that you used um the uh the search something the parameters or something that you the, oh, those operators little, operators right? right exactly so that comes directly see that's the funny thing when they always talk about how maybe google's in trouble because they really come from a desktop paradigm well yeah those those operators that comes directly from <laughs> uh, coming up on computers where yes you sit down there's a blinking cursor and there's not icons to click you have to you have to know the funny code not code but you have to remember, okay, to open, to open a file, I have to do this. Mm-hmm. To find a directory, I have to do this. It, it, it was not intuitive at all. Like, you, like, listen, you can give a two-year-old an iPhone today and they can operate it. it you know, a two-year-old, a, a, a 79-year-old, <laughs> pretty much that's the whole point of the, of, of the GUI revolution is that uh, the old command line computers were not intuitive at all. You had to you had to learn the the arcane way to do it. Yeah, and you had asked me about the idea of what it was like to live with DOS or sort of live through that transition mm-hmm. from a command line thing to a GUI thing. And I definitely lived straight through that. I, I liked DOS. I thought it was cool. I was proud of my skills that because I had to build them up. I had to go read books about exactly about that stuff. Um, I learned to program Basic and Pascal and stuff. And so I felt that by gaining mastery over that thing, which was the only way to use it to do much, um, that uh, that sort of engendered a sense that I, I don't know how to put this, I, I loved the machine. Like I loved my own ability to be master of this machine. And as things became easier to use, there's a tendency, I think, for some people to feel like, oh no, like the, the unwashed masses are coming in onto mm-hmm. my lawn and using right. the secret tools that only I had the lore to use. Uh, and it was never an, an intellectual capacity thing. It was more like, well, I put in the time, man. You know, I put in the time right. and I'll show you and stuff. I paid my dues, yeah. Well, and uh, this came up at one point. I went to library science school. So I came home with my degree, my freshly minted, you know, degree in, in library and information studies. I don't call it science. And mm-hmm. then later they dropped the library from that and just called it. Uh, information studies or science Mm -hmm. and i sat down with my mother who wanted to do some genealogical research and i was showing her the google because this was 1999 and so the google i said is much better than the alta vista or the whatever else the dog pile and i'm showing her these google operators that i had learned probably a year or two before like putting things in quotes right right using brackets and all this other stuff and I said, you know, you definitely want to do this. If you want both words, you put the whole thing in quotes, then you do this and that and the other thing. And we're not quite finding the results that she's sort of looking for. And she said, well, what if I just typed the thing I'm looking for? Mm-hmm. And I literally scoffed because I was, the, you know, I'm that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and said, well, it's not going to work because, you know, I've just been through <laughs> several years of intense training in this topic. So she just types in the thing she wants. Mm-hmm. And it works better than my dumb you know, carefully constructed database-driven searchy query right. thing. Typing in, where was Tom Petty born? Right. right. He yeah. just types some stuff in, and it gets back to, the, like, the first hit is, you know, the exact thing. And I'm just floored because, effectively, 
the you know Google has just rendered my education useless. Right. Right. Which is like at the same time as it's great for everybody, you know, that my my folks can use this now and there's no barrier there. I also think, well, crap. You know, yeah. Like, what can I teach myself real quick that nobody else knows? And that's sort of the, the history of being a tech person. You kind of pick up a thing, and you can be not a master of that domain, but at least be really conversant in a slightly arcane place for ever decreasing periods of time. It used to be you could be a master of a thing for five years, and then some new thing would come out. Now it's like three months, and then everybody figures, eh, well, well, yeah. Know. With the languages too. I mean, it's mm-hmm. crazy like that, but. You know, that, that makes me think, though, of, 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 like, Siri and, you know, obviously, so if we're saying that the Google search bar is still is the last command line, yeah, but even even all of those parameters and things go away because they're obviously, they're going to get, they already have basically natural language search in terms of typing it in, and then eventually we're going to be talking to Siri like they do on Star Trek The Next Generation, and so, yeah, uh, yeah so maybe, maybe he's wrong, the command line's going away anyway, but... Um, um, so also thinking about this, and so now, since you brought up Google, this is uh, thinking about going back to, to Microsoft, um, again, thinking of Windows 95 as being their high watermark and, you know, ho- I'll obviously be doing more work on, on how everybody was afraid of Microsoft until late into, into the two thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, but it made me think of, there is a real it's not a horse race, but there's a real um, chronology to in Silicon Valley, who is the dominant company that is driving the industry forward. And it was absolutely Microsoft from let's say 1990 to maybe 97, 98, certainly 95. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, the web comes and the dot com era. And then I don't know, but then, then clearly it was Google. Google takes the mantle. Google is where all the smart people are. And, and, and the way that you measure this is where do all the smart people want to work, <laughs> right? Right, right. Because you and I can both remember in, in 2000 till about 2004, everybody, like that was the place to work. Google was where all the great stuff was happening, all the smartest people. Um, and, and, and in some ways it can evolve in terms of, okay, Especially now, who's gonna who's where are the stock options gonna make you the most money? Yeah, but I mean, come come two thousand four till definitely, I don't know they their IPO. It was definitely Facebook. So so Microsoft, then Google, then Facebook, um, and then you know maybe you would argue Apple uh, because you know yeah. listen when the iPhone comes out and especially the App Store, no one can argue that all of a sudden computing and technology was being driven forward by that insane great run of basically the five years from, from the iPhone to the iPad. Um, But so this is all leading to what I was thinking about, which is what is that company today? Cause I don't feel like it's Apple anymore. And again, you can measure it by, okay, where do people want to go to get rich off of stock options? So by that metric, it would be obviously Uber, you know, um, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but I kind of, if you ask me who is the company that all the smart tech people want to work at today, aside from getting rich, they want to go where the, the best work is being done. Um, I don't know that I have an answer and I don't know that you would have an answer either, but what is, what does that make you think of? Like who, who, who has the mantle today? You know, yeah, from where I sit, there was a time <clears throat> and I think that time is over. 
uh, where Apple clearly became a thing. I remember a friend of mine who uh, must remain nameless, but a friend of mine uh, from Florida repeatedly was uh, offered jobs at Apple and mm-hmm. repeatedly mm-hmm. said no. And he was smart enough to do it. He had the background to do it. He would have done a great job. But effectively, he said, I can't give up my lifestyle, my family, move across the country and give mm-hmm. everything to any company. Um, and if I ever were to do so, it would be definitely be Apple. Uh, or maybe, maybe maybe Google, but really Apple because this is the guy who's really an Apple guy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And he would occasionally call me and say, yep, I got another offer. And I don't know. And sometimes he wouldn't even tell what team. You know, I mean, the offers were very vague, but, you know, he – this guy got to meet Steve Jobs, who was like, please come work for us and do this thing. And he said no. He doesn't regret it. Um, yeah, he's, yeah. he's done very well for himself. And the thing that I think is different now is that I think people – and I don't know if this is a like a millennial shift or something. I think people want to make their own thing. I don't think that the thing that I set out to do with getting kind of a dot-com-y degree in the 90s mm-hmm. and intentionally trying to go to Seattle and then stopping one step short and ending up in Portland, the plan was to go to Seattle and to work for maybe Microsoft, maybe Adobe, or probably a startup because who knew, right? Yeah, because we definitely need to stress that, again, when Microsoft was dominant in the, in the early 90s especially, in the mid-90s, around the era of Windows 95, Microsoft was where the smart people were. <laughs> Like, yeah, totally. you know, there's, there's, there's Microsurf, the, the Douglas Copeland book, which I believe neither of us have read, but like <laughs> there was, that was the culture at the time that if you're smart, if you want to get rich, you're going to go to Seattle and you're going to work for Microsoft. Yeah. And a couple of my friends did, which is also kind of weird. I realized I've, I have probably four or five friends who at some point in their career from the late nineties through now spent some stint at Microsoft because it's kind of hard to avoid if that's where you live. If you live around the Seattle area, you're just going to end up doing some Microsoft stuff. Um, and some of that was like Xbox and some of that was UI, UX stuff. Um, and so, you know, they would take a kind of a detour through that. In the same way that in Oregon, people tend to take a detour through Intel. Like a lot of people here have worked in some way hmm. for or at Intel. Like I still sometimes work with a large chip maker in the Pacific Northwest that I'm not supposed to really name. But, you know, my the guy who first hired me at my my first startup here was a direct Intel kind of grad. And I've still worked with that guy for 15 years now. Uh, and now I'm interviewing him for films and stuff, even though... So like, as my role has changed, he's still working, you know, with and around the Intel sphere. And the same way the Microsoft sphere was dominant just one state away from us. Uh, the other thing that happens in, in Oregon, by the way, is that the there were other companies around here that aren't quite as dominant. Like, you'd have Tektronics. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of people were, you know, I think that's a little bit of an older demographic, as far as I could tell. People would go through tech in maybe the 80s. Uh, that was still pretty common. But by the time I got here, that was not, like, a, a thing that you would aim for. But um, McAfee, um, right. Symantec... Right, right. You right. had various, oddly, like multiple antivirus companies yeah, last year. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Remember how big antivirus was as an industry at a time? Oh yeah, <laughs> at a period and, of time. and not sleazily. They were. It was no. an actually interesting, vibrant space for a yeah, while. Yeah, and now it just it feels to me from as as a smug Mac user, I'm like, well, you know, uh, good for you right. and your thing. But actually, I know a guy who works for. Uh, I always forget which one it is, but he works for one of these things. Brilliant guy, uh, basically deep thinker former hacker has all these you know crazy stories about you know selling pirated floppy disks out of the trunk of his car and stuff you know like 
genuinely smart people who go to work at lots of different companies. But I, to get back to your actual question, I really think that the lore of the startup is why we no longer have so many of these. Hmm. It's like as we decided, as we kind of realized and decided that we weren't going to go and work for IBM for 50 years and then retire with a pension, as, as that became clear that that wasn't an option uh, for our next jobs, it was like, well, do we go to the next IBM, which was like Microsoft right. or Google or whatever? Or we just make our own thing and try to get rich and then see what happens after that. And a lot of people, myself included, did that second thing, just tried to go for a startup and roll the dice. Well, I get that. And, and again, I want to stress it's not just about the getting rich because mm -hmm. one of my main points would be that um, – especially in the early 2000s, people that wanted to work at Google wanted to work there because that's where the interesting stuff was happening. That's where all the smart people were. And so that's sort of the paradigm. Like maybe it requires a company because Google was the paradigm shifter that brought the web out of the, the dot-com nuclear winter um, that set up Web 2.0. Facebook was the living embodiment of Web 2.0 and social media, this whole revolution. So when people wanted to work at Facebook, sure, you could you could make your millions, but also that's where the new paradigm of tech was was springing forth from. So again, maybe it does. Maybe there's not a company right now that is. Um, that you can say is the standard bearer for the new paradigm. Like maybe mm -hmm. it's Snapchat, you know, listen, I'm not poo-pooing Uber and it's obviously has the potential to revolutionize transportation, which is not a small thing. I, I get all that. But I, if, if some, if some kid came out of college and said, I want to work at the smart company where all the smart people are, where the future is being made. And listen, uh, uh, Google would argue that they are that company. You know? Sure. No. Yeah. And but the thing is, I, yeah. I don't, it doesn't roll off the top of my head who that company is right now today. Yeah. You know what just came to mind? Tesla. Sure. Right. Or SpaceX. Okay. You know, okay. so the whole the Tesla verse, the the Muskiverse. That would be where the smart people that want to challenge themselves and want to invent the future. That's where they would think they would go. I think that. I mean, I think for a certain kind of nerd, yeah, because I think that that's actually something where. You know, I think my brother faced a similar kind of challenge when he graduated with an actual CS degree, you know, with actual higher education, like higher, higher education. You know, he had the opportunity to go with a small startup or an established startup, you know, so get in early and maybe make a big splash and be like the main brain or be one of like 10 huge brains in this awesome thing. And he chose the latter. He chose to go with other smart people and then eventually spun off and became the CTO of his own company. Um, and... That idea of these slightly smaller companies, you know, that don't spring to mind, I don't think, you know, Tesla is not a top of mind company for me. SpaceX is probably higher in my awareness because, let's face it, I'm on their PR list because they keep, you know, throwing <laughs> stuff into space, you know, and saying, mm -hmm, hey, mm -hmm. tune in tomorrow. Um, but I do think that if you look for where the smart people are, I'm, I'm betting that they're trying to kind of align themselves around Elon Musk at the moment. But I agree that that's nowhere near the cultural currency that you know, that Microsoft had or that Google still has. Uh, and Microsoft, you know, you can't sneeze at it, but it's, it's, a, it's, I, I also want to disclose, I've done work with the Gates Foundation, mm -hmm. um, which is not the same thing as Microsoft. Right, but It's right. very, very similar in some ways. But, like, it's not culturally, like, those companies are so big and so known, and they really are and really were doing the smart people stuff. Um, that even things like their test questions to get in are famous, maybe infamous, 
Um, but, you know, nonetheless, like something that people would talk about just as a topic of conversation. Like, can you believe how smart you would have to be to go even try right. to work right. there? Yeah, which is which is always BS because <laughs> yeah. you, you think that there's a place where all the smart people are, uh, but it turns out that everyone's faking it and no one really knows anything. But that, that's that's my that's that's my own personal prejudice. Um, is that, but can we pause on that for a second? We sure. just like dwell on that. I think that that's a thesis of startups. Uh, that's that's what I took away from being in startups through the 2000s was that. Honestly, and this is a pessimistic view, but I took away the view that nobody knows what they're doing. Everyone's making it up. And it's more about whether you're like good at making it up or finding somebody who will help you make it up in the proper way. But there are relatively few people who go into a sort of knowing precisely all the waters they're going to have to tread. No, no none of them. Uh, listen, yeah. it, it, it's, it's mostly luck. And, and it's luck, but then the real genius is somebody that lucks into it but then is the right person to take advantage of that luck. And, you know, Zuckerberg would be top of mind. I don't think anyone would have imagined that that Mark Zuckerberg would turn out to be a good uh, corporate CEO. It turns out he is. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so that's an accident. I, you know, so he accidentally um, lucked into creating the perfect social network. He wasn't the first. Um, he might not have been the best. Maybe there was someone that would have created a better one. But once he landed on that luck, it turns out that he was the right person. So th that's I'm more convinced that that's where the genius comes in. In the same way, you could say the same thing about Bill Gates. Um, I'm not saying that there aren't geniuses. I'm just saying that the genius that 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 wakes up and looks across the the field of society or technology and says, "This is my vision, and I'm going to see it all the way through." those basically don't exist. Maybe Steve Jobs being the, the exception that proves the rule. But then what I'm saying, my theory would be the real genius is the one that lucks into something really good and then turns out to be the right person to see that to fruition. Yeah, and I think there's a case for Gates as being, you know, like as far back as the mid-70s writing like the letter absolutely. to hobbyists. Right, absolutely. Like there's such a clear vision. And all, the, all that that letter says is software has value. Like, which was a, a controversial idea at the time. The time software had right. no value and hardware had all the value. All the value. But, yeah. But then going on to then make all the money <laughs> selling software mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for the next 30 years. And but that's the, what I'm yeah. saying. I, I agree yeah. with you that, that Gates um, had the vision that software was the value proposition for computing. And I understand that. But um, he, he, he just acts, he backed into one of the greatest businesses of all time just by having the drive to be like, I want every machine on the planet to run my software. Yeah. And so this is what I'm saying. This is sort of my thesis is that, okay, it turns out that he was absolutely the right guy to, to see that to fruition and make that happen. And, and I'm not, listen, I, again, I'm not saying this to diminish or poo poo anybody's I'm saying actually that's where the genius lies. The genius lies in, because there's tons of people that can luck into a great, business idea a great company and then look they're not they're not qualified to actually make it into a, a great company or mm -hmm. so the real genius are the people that it turns out when when luck uh knocks them over the head it turns out <laughs> that you know I, you know what i'm the guy that deserved to get that lottery ticket because yeah, i know yeah. what to do with it right when I, I wanted to ask you this before the podcast um you so in the process of interviewing all these people and synthesizing the history of this era, I keep wondering whether you like put your head on the pillow at night and just start thinking of new startup ideas. Do you know what I mean? Because you're exposed to you know what's so <laughs> <laughs> go uh, ahead. 
as recently as maybe five years ago, that used to happen to me all the time. It doesn't happen to me now. Really? That, that might just be a, a um, I, I, literally, that might be a function of age, uh-huh. <laughs> which actually uh, we'll get to in a second because that's my next topic for you. But um, I, you know what? What's interesting, you were make, just having talked about this makes me think of it is the thing that I have to guard about when I'm interviewing people is because I think intrinsically most of the people that are interviewed on the show understand that if if you can get them to be honest, you know, in the middle of the night, they understand that they got lucky. Mm-hmm. But everybody then wants to wants to do the hagiography of how, oh, yeah, listen, here's how I did my brilliant thing. So I'm always trying, not in an aggressive way, not in a I'm a journalist way, but I'm trying to guard against the, yeah. you know, when, when, when someone comes on the show and, and interviews about their startup in the 90s and I don't want them to just be like, well, because clearly I was a genius and I saw this and I saw that. I kind of always try to steer them in the direction of, okay, but at the time, what did you see? Like, how did you make this decision (laughs) that did end up working out for you in the end? Like, try to put yourself back there. Like, the tendency is for people, and maybe, maybe doing this has made me think that way about people. You get lucky, you luck into it, and then do you have the metal to turn it into something? Yeah. And so I, I, I'm again, I'm not trying to be aggressive with people, but I always try to steer it away from, well, of course, the reason I was successful with this company was because I'm a genius and I had the vision from day one. No, you didn't. I guarantee you, you did mm-hmm. not. You know? Yeah, no, I've, I've run into that quite a bit. I think the, for me, the most, the most interesting and challenging example of that was when I interviewed Brewster Kale, who is now best known, I think, for the Internet Archive, but he also mm-hmm, mm-hmm. co-invented Waze. Um, and he at the Google uh, thingy at the Google thingy. No, he was at, um, gosh, he was oh, like, ways you're saying ways. W A I S. Yeah. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I was thinking of, uh, uh, what am I thinking of a different Brewster possibly? No, a different ways. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, well, but the point is, you know, this is a guy who is super brilliant, like so brilliant that you go and you watch all of these interviews he's given. And I've seen him, you can watch him because also he's an archivist. So he wants you to upload your raw interview. So my mm-hmm. raw interview right after we did this, and I've never done this with anybody else, but he asked. So I said, yeah, okay. Um, he said, let's pull the memory card out of your thing and upload it to the archive right now. And I said, uh, okay. So you can go on internet archive right now and search for like Chris Higgins, Brewster Kale, mm-hmm. and listen to about an hour of kind of echoey bad sound of me trying to get something out of a guy who has told his origin story I don't know how many times, a hundred times. But right. I had seen archival footage of him talking to interviewers who fundamentally had no idea who he was or why he mattered or why any of his work might go together. And I had tried to tried to get to things that weren't going to trigger him to just tell you the hagiography of his thing. Not that he's intentionally doing that, but it's that thing where if you're like a book author or something, the 40th time somebody says, well, how'd you get the idea for the book? Mm-hmm. You've just, you just tell some dumb narrative because you want to kind of get past that question. You just, you know, that's what's in your mind now. You've developed a story. That's the narrative. you want to or, or if you're eBay, you invent a narrative that <laughs> is all about Pez dispensers. That Pez thing is great. That's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, and fascinating that you would turn that up as intentionally, you know, placing the wrong flag. I think that's really smart. 
Well, it and, was just a simple, cute thing that, yeah, it was it was a great PR idea. Yeah. <laughs> PR genius right there. Well, it's the kind of thing I would actually recommend if people are going to have a business or a yeah. book or anything yes. today. Go ahead and make something up. Like, right. what, what's the origin story of this? Well, I fell on my head in the bathtub and I invented the flux capacitor. I, I thousand percent agree with you. Yeah. Have a eureka moment, even if the eureka moment really took you four years of hard research, you know? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. what, again, if, if you're buying into my theory that it's all accidental anyway and luck, then what difference does it make? And eventually, when, when some dumb historian like me comes around, you, you can tell them the true story and, and give them a scoop, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I – okay, you, I had said earlier the next topic has to do with age. And, and one of the reasons that I, I do analysis episodes that I love, I love talking to you is it's sort of like hype-checking me. Uh, and yeah. um, so one of the things that has been I, – I'm, I'm deep in the dot-com research right now. One of the reasons I wanted to do this project is because I – man, I love the dot-com era. I love the bubble. I love all this stuff. And it still seems relevant because, you know, every day there's another think piece on Medium about how we are or aren't in a new bubble. And, and the bubble for Silicon Valley, the dot-com bubble, is sort of like um, – what um, the Great Depression was for our grandparents, <laughs> this, uh-huh. yeah. this thing that's always going to come back, or, or to if you're an economist, it's it's uh, the inflation of the '70s is always going to come back, despite the fact that it hasn't for almost a decade now. Um, but I'm kind of hype checking myself and asking you to hype check me because it's occurred to me that the dot com era, as I'm researching it and remembering all this stuff, and it's nostalgia for me. I'm starting to wonder. Is it just nostalgia for me? Because this was when, when are you at your best in life? When you're coming out of college and the world's your oyster and you can do anything. And you and I are about the same age. And and so remember, man, when we were graduating from college, it was like everybody's getting rich. The whole world is changing. We're we're inventing new ways of living, man. Do you you remember? (laughs) Like that was, that's not hyperbole. That was literally what people were feeling at the time. But I'm wondering, is it just in the same way that, you know, for my dad, um, Pink Floyd, there's never going to be better music than Dark Side of the Moon. And for me, there's never going to be a better album than OK Computer. Is it? <laughs> uh, yeah. Is, is the dot-com era only? I, I think it's interesting. I think it's important. But is it more important to me because, man, that's when, when I was 24 and, and the world was at my feet? Hype check me. <laughs> yes, it, it is that. Every generation thinks that they're the biggest deal. And I think that that's um, a reality that we have to face and embrace. But the, the thing that we lived through is, by definition, the most important thing to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you look back over even short timescales, if you look back to, like, our own parents, and you think, so when were they our age? In the case of my mother and father... Uh, let me do some quick math. That would be like late 60s, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe early 70s. Mm-hmm. And so um, they actually, oh boy, it's it's so funny. I decided what, what is my own age? And I started just adding 20 years on. Mm-hmm. I'm 37, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anyway, no, no, it would be, <laughs> it'd be like the early 80s. But just thinking about, you know, when would they be hitting that kind of 20 something, like you're kind of at the prime of your ability Where to- Where you know, like I always think about it like, I definitely know I don't know what the great music is right now. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Yeah. Or like, you know, when you knew when when Borat or or um, or uh, Napoleon Dynamite came bubbled up, but you were one of the first people to know that that was a thing. Like, I'm clearly too old to know what the 
the Borat or Napoleon Dynamite or the great new band of today is. But yes, so this is exactly what I'm saying. And I think it's when you come out of college, maybe when you start your first job, you're plugged in the, to pop culture. You know what the new thing is. You know what the smart people are eating, listening to, go, the movies <laughs> they're watching. You know, like you yeah. are plugged in, man. And, and that was 1999 <laughs> for me. Man. Yeah. Well, I, I, there's a couple of things I think about this a lot. One of them is the people who create the majority of the culture in my, at least in my reading of the last 50 years are often in their thirties. The people who are like the most sort of at the combination of like the top of their game and the enough experience to get their creative thing out there. So if you look at, I've been researching Jim Henson a lot lately. Mm. So if you look at that guy and you look at when the contributions he made that were the most uh, interesting and long-term would lead to the later contributions. He was like 31 to 35. So this is the early, like late 60s uh, into mid-70s. That was this period where he was kind of at the height of his power. And this also comes about when you're like a writer or a reporter where you reach an age where you have, a, I think, a window. And the window is, I'm old enough that I can talk to the real gray beards and people and still have enough cultural touchstones that I can at least kind of play, right? Like I can mm, say, mm. you know, I understand what the summer of love is. I wasn't there cause I wasn't born, but I kind of get it, but I get it enough. Cause I, you know, there were still some hippies around sort of like the ones that had survived the seventies. I, I saw them and then they were swept away. Right. And, but I can also speak to younger people because I'm right in the middle. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm going to exit this, area at some point right like at some point i'm gonna ha i'm necessarily going to become and i'm already there with things like music as you suggested i'm already stuck on my music from 1989 to about 2002 or something right yeah i it's the, rare that i find new because uh, i'm i'm 37 too and i've 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 given up i know that the last great album that will ever be released in my mind will be the last lcd sound system album like uh. <laughs> like that's just the sound that i need and i don't need anything else and i'm sorry you know like, yeah i, I just yeah. know that now yeah you just you collect your things and you're at some point you cease to invest your time in certain in certain cultural things right so the people who make and ha or have the let's say the opportunity to make those kinds of connections and you're going about this right now like you're going about interviewing a bunch of people who are primarily a good bit older than you but not a ton older you know like you were still there you still had a taste of that experience and so you can you can relate to them not quite at the age peer, but as an experience mm -hmm, peer, right? Mm -hmm. So you can say, yeah, you know, I, I get it. And I've talked to enough of you people like, you know, we're there. Um, if you go forward 15 years, that may be harder for you to do with people who are, you know, substantially younger or older, right? Uh, because the younger people, you won't share the same culture with them. You won't know what their touchstones are, what they mean when they say like, oh, blah, 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 band is amazing. You'll just kind of, right, right. I have to be like, I don't really know what Justin Bieber is. I don't really know any songs. Right. I couldn't name a song. Right. So anyway, the, the point is like, I do think that generations uh, believe that, that they're the biggest deal. And that's a that's a human trait in the same way that generations, every generation thinks that they may well be the last. And that's why we have apocalypticism as part of our mm -hmm. sort of human makeup. And that's why we keep thinking the world is going to end and it's going to end within our times. We're going to see the end. That is just a, a fundamental part of what it is to be human. Well, and it's a, a fundamental universal trait that, man, it's worse off now. <laughs> you yeah. know, the way we did yeah. it was better. We were so much smarter 
the kids today are so much dumber. Uh, if this was the 1950s, it would be because it, they watch TV all the time. You know, like it, yeah. it, the, the music is not as good. Right. It's essentially it, it Chris, kids these days. Chris, yeah. Wait, yeah, you're telling me is Waves Kane, get off my lawn. This is a natural part of aging. <laughs> so, yes. I, and I, I think we, we need to, as a culture, um, be okay with that. And then just understand that from that perspective that I feel so deeply that I'm like, man, I lived through this rocking like 90s thing with. <laughs> Like, I understand how lame that already sounds, right? Oh, you know, let me give you a good anecdote. My dad used to work at an FM, an AM radio station uh, mm-hmm. in, in Florida. And one day he came in, it was an oldie station. One day he came in and he said, we have started the process of updating all of the records. We're throwing out the 30s and we're putting in the 40s. Mm. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is an oldie station. The oldies are the oldies. And he said, you don't understand. What's happened is the people who listen to the music of the 30s are, are they're dead now. The people right. who listen to the music of the 40s are, you know, demographically speaking, they're where it's at for my AM radio station in Southwest Florida. So we need to cater to them. And I realized as like a five-year-old that the oldies were a moving concept. Mm, mm-hmm. So fast forward 32 years sure. and oldies now has Nirvana on it. You right, know? exactly. Yeah. And so you're like, whoa, ho, ho. But the, the the realization that you're in a continuum of people who are caught up in their little moments is super important. And also realizing that at some point, uh, you know, like we we saw the advent of touchscreens, right? And mm-hmm. in the same way that, that these children I spoke about earlier, like these little kids, like they they were born into a world of primarily touchscreens. Right. Um, no probably, command lines. <laughs> we have a few of those state transitions left, right? Like, we came from command lines. We came from nothing. We came from typewriters to command lines <laughs> to to network computers to, like, you know, portable computers to computers in your pocket to touch interfaces. And now on to VR. Right. And so at some point in there, you're going to lose me, right? At some point, I'm going to be like, well, you know, I'm just going to start I'm writing letters. Checking out, know? yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of like you, you can make fun of, of like a, a parent or a grandparent and say like, well, it's so funny that they still save all their data on floppies or something. But that's inevitable. And in, in some ways, you can celebrate that in, in a nostalgic way um, or not even celebrate it, just admit it. Like that's, that's sort of where you where you have to live. And I, I keep watching myself for when that happens to me in technology. And I think it already happens to me in a lot of filmmaking technology. Like I'm starting not to care about things mm. like 4k video and right. you know, cause to me, I'm like, you know what? DVDs look awesome. Frankly, like my, vi- my vision is sufficiently poor that to me, a DVD is about right. Uh, and Blu-ray. Yeah, it looks definitely better, but does it need to look better than Blu-ray? Right. So right. I, you know, I find myself just sort of be in this, in the early stages of, of realizing that I have fallen off the thing that I always loved, which was just because technology got better, and gives us a higher quality thing. I don't actually care anymore. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to scare uh, listeners. I, I'm. I'm. I am still super excited about researching and and because I, I one of again one of the reasons I wanted to do this this podcast was I I want to tell the story of the dot com bubble, um, mm-hmm. and I want to do it justice. So I'm not saying that I'm reassessing how important it was, but. You know, as I'm looking at the continuum of the history, I'm I'm realizing that well, that just was the web, but the web is not what the internet era is all about, and it's not. So I'm not. Don't worry, people. I'm still super excited <laughs> to tell the story of 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 the dot com companies and the craziness and 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 you know there is value to again. That's what history is. Is I was there. 
I remember that crazy the 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 the, the millennial feeling of it's the year two thousand is coming and mm-hmm. it really did feel like everybody was getting rich, everything was awesome, we're changing the world, you know. You know, you can get into then the 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 nine eleven chronology and stuff like that. But yeah, man, I'm tell I was there. I'm telling you, 1998, 1999, fucking rocked. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I mean, and I think celebrate that, right? Like celebrate yeah. that in the same way that you could say if you were alive in '68 and '69, pretty much everything that happened happened in those two years. If you look mm-hmm. like you know, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, the Tet Offensive and all sort of stuff. There's a lot of, and you know, uh, the the assassination of a very important president, like sure, lots of lots stuff, of riots, yeah, lots of other stuff that happened. But if you're going to boil it down to a couple of years, and you said, you know what, I was there. That was a big deal. We put dudes on the moon, and then we kept doing it, and like that was a, that's friggin' amazing. So celebrate that, and it's not like I'm just saying celebrate it and be aware that your posture towards that thing is colored by the fact that you were there, but you were there. And, like, the number of people who were there will dwindle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, right, exactly. You know, this is it, and we're not going to make any more of them. So the ones who were there and who have, a, like, an operable memory of it, you'd better record it now because, as you've discussed in past episodes, this is history that will be lost and is important. It may not be, it may not be for us to decide whether this is more or less important than other things in the 20th century, right? Like, world wars are probably more important than the fall sure, of Berlin sure. Wall. It's probably, like, bigger in certain ways than, like, did we get a great search engine? But in other ways, you know what? You might look back and say, actually, putting computers in everyone's pockets or whatever, making iPads or some some moment in that spectrum uh, fundamentally did change lives in a way that will will seem unthinkable. Well, and, and, I think that that's and, already and was us. and was informed by the dot com bubble. You know, if if mm-hmm. again, there's there's utility to looking back at what the the, the bubble was and um, what it wasn't. And so not only identifying if you're in another one, but, you know, yeah, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about about telling that story. But um, I want to I, I, I almost swore we were only going to do an hour, but let, let's let's end with um, when when they when they did that great incomparable podcast about um, the great books, the great tech books made me think again, let's combine these two ideas. What are the great uh, internet movies or and <laughs> so we're talking about 1999 the net well no of course it's not the net and of hackers? course it's not hackers no sneakers so it's kind of pre internet no no, no 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 none of those so <clears throat> it made you've me got realize. mail perhaps you got mail you can make an argument yeah you can make an argument right because it's kind of it's an online service it's, yeah. it's a very specific point in time when aol did seem to be the internet uh to a lot of people but no i, I am realizing speaking of 1999 listen the quintessential at least dot com era movie and possibly the, the quintessential internet movie is the first matrix mm-hmm. uh discuss because <laughs> okay, i yeah so you, I, you just rewatched it recently well, I had a glass of white wine, yeah. and I sat down with my uh, devices, and I watched this motion picture last night. And I have a lot to say about this thing. I have not seen this movie probably since, like, 2002 or three. you know? Because mm-hmm. I saw it when it came mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. and it blew my mind. And then I saw it probably when it came out on DVD, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Oh, by the way, it, everyone had it on DVD because it was when DVDs sort of became prevalent, was or, was around the release of The Matrix. So they were giving mm-hmm. that away. Mm-hmm. I was working at Blockbuster at the time, so I can I can vouch, vouch safe for this. But <laughs> everybody had The Matrix DVD because it was the thing that everyone was like, okay, I want to see 
what this DVD technology is. Everyone had the Matrix DVD, but go on. Right. Well, so just watching the film, there is one thing that from almost moment one just screams at me. And this gets it back again to the kids thing, kids these days, which is the primacy in the Matrix of telephones. Yes. Yes. Telephones are the central yes. metaphor Pay for phones, everything. By the Pay way. Phones. Pay well, phones. Well, yeah. Pay well, phones is one thing. They also have cell phones. Okay. I was going to say that because to this day, I might be willing to trade in my iPhone for the the Nokia, I believe it is, phone. Yeah, like that, Nokia that slider Morpheus, phone. The Morpheus slider phone is the sexiest mm-hmm. electronic device that I have ever seen. It's got a cool, like, chunk when you slide oh. it out. Yeah. And, then, and also, also yeah. What's, what's interesting about that is also this was in the day, which I still believe in. I miss these days. When the whole thing was getting a smaller phone. <laughs> We're in an era where everyone wants bigger phones, but no, the cool thing was a a phone so small that it basically just kind of was the size of your ear. And I had that Nokia, whatever, whatever. Oh, crap. I should have researched that before we did this. I had that super small Nokia. I'll put it in the show I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, It was literally maybe three inches tall, you know? Hmm. Um, I'll, I'll definitely research it and put it in the show notes. That's still my favorite phone of all time. Yeah. Actually, the most reliable phone I've ever used as a phone. But anyway, I interrupted you. Go on. Well, okay. But so the thing is, kids who were born after this movie will never understand. I mean, I think we'll only look at it as some kind of quaint, uh, you know, anachronistic thing that there are, first of all, there are phone booths located all over the city mm-hmm. um, and that they are they are important and that they are hard lines, which yeah, also is a concept you, that doesn't really exist. That's how you world. jack into the matrix. You have to yes, jack in, you yeah. know, that's how you kind of, and also that downloading and uploading yourself requires you to go to a place. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, but this is so culturally, you know, important because if you were sort of a child of the eighties and nineties and you're writing this movie, you would say, well, of course it's the telephone line. Of course that is the central way that we network, right? Mm-hmm. And so somehow you have this undersea floating machine that requires a telephone hard link, like to, to mm-hmm. what? Anyway, whatever. But so a whole bunch of the movie revolves around the availability and reliability of telephones, dial tone, you know, et cetera. That's one thing that's just bizarre. Uh the idea of that, that Nokia slider phone appears at least twice because also there's a guy uh, who's kind of a like a double agent, right? And he um, has one of those too. He throws it in a trash can. It's like kind of I a can't locator. remember the actor's name, but he was in you know he played this uh, on the Sopranos first season, and he's in yeah. uh, Memento. Yeah, what's that guy's name? I, I forget his name, but you know you look at him, you're like that's probably the bad guy. He was he's in everything in hair. that era. Yeah, there was mm-hmm. a f- five year period when he was in a lot of stuff. One other thing that really jumped out at me was also the way that they depicted the Matrix as code yeah. was green phosphors on a black screen. Right. Okay, so where have we seen green phosphors on a black screen? Everybody who had a terminal, like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in the early 80s, you'd bring that home for your Apple II or whatever. Yeah. That was mm-hmm. the, er- the early cheapo kind of CRT uh, terminal. And so the idea, and of course, that you know, it's in columns that are going from top to bottom, but it's it even has phosphor delay, like the right. way that they're displaying it. Um, and that's sort of fascinating. The other thing that's, that jumps out early on is the use of physical media. So Neo is like a dealer of programs, and I think they're on mini disc. I think he's giving people Sony mini discs. Yeah. Out of a book, like a fake book that's like Simulacra or something, he opens this book and it's got these little, some sort of mini disc esque thing. Um, so the fact that he is literally handing over physical media in exchange for cash 
uh, is another kind of anachronistic Well, because they're, they're making the analogy there. It, it's meant to read as sort of like a drug deal. Right. Like he's giving you illicit goods right. as if he's a drug dealer. Right, yes. Well, and today, if that were de- depicted, then you would have an upload like a progress bar, right? Like you'd mm-hmm. say, okay, mm-hmm. wire me the money, and that's one progress bar. Okay, I'm wiring you the program. It's another progress bar because, mm-hmm. you know, it's all in the cloud, right? So there is no cloud, which is – I can't fault the filmmakers for not, you know, foreseeing everything – but that's just fascinating that, that, that the prevalence of things like floppies and CD-ROMs and stuff was still so top of mind that they would think, of course, you'd have a program with the word jujitsu handwritten on it that you would put into a slot and the slot would like a, in, ingest into a computer mm-hmm. and then that would jack into somebody's cerebral cortex. And but also that's the, the sexiness of it at the time. Right, the physicality of it, yes, right? Because you yeah. want to be jacking in like, you know, I'm going to, okay, let's do the other martial arts. Let's just go through all of them. Right. And because one of the behaviors of being a hacker or being like a computer nerd was that you would have a lot of media. You'd have a lot of media that you'd collected or stolen or bought or whatever, and you'd have like weird labels and you'd have it all yeah. organized or not. And so that was a point of pride. And you can well, just tell that the makers of the film are, are, are those people. Okay, you've hit on an excellent point, I think, because... Uh, this is a super aside. I don't want to get into it, but if you haven't watched Mr. Robot, watch Mr. Robot. It's not perfect, but yeah. it is the best representation of hacking, hacker culture, of basically computing I've ever seen. But yeah. it's not perfect. Don't, don't get me wrong. Um, but one of the things that the the Matrix represents to me is, and one of the things that I hate about the depiction of computer culture, hacker culture especially, is always like, well, if you're a hacker, you've got superpowers, man. And in a way, even Mr. Robot is guilty of this, but you've got superpowers that mere mortals can't even begin to understand. And in a way, like The Matrix, the reason it's the perfect hacker slash internet era movie or whatever is that they take that idea and they make it manifest in a very real way because, okay, the entire, all of our reality is just a computer simulation and so what does Neo do? He gains superpowers because he, can, he, he, he gains awareness of his reality, and so he can hack it. Not because he's a superhero, but because as a hacker, mm-hmm. he can literally you know, stop bullets in midair and things like that. So in a way, the, the, re, the main reason that I would argue that this is the best computing, hacking, internet, whatever movie, is just that it makes it manifest this idea um, that mastering machines gives you superpowers. And I listen, again, mm-hmm. I hate the way that this is usually, in, especially in mass media, any time on 60 Minutes or whatever, they do a thing about hacking or whatever, I am throwing things at the TV because <laughs> you just have to have a basic <laughs> knowledge of computing to be have Le- Leslie Stahl on the screen be like, they can do that, oh, my stars, clutch pearls. Like, okay, listen... <laughs> But, but clutch, so, clutch pearls should be a, a you know her her slogan. Maybe that you know? maybe we should uh, make that the title of this sure of this episode. But um, that's definitely her slogan. Um, but so okay, so in 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 the Joseph Campbell you know way of of storytelling, that's why the Matrix is perfect. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, now I I I'm if you had more thoughts, I I don't want to interrupt you, but I have a lot of thoughts about this too. Go with your thoughts, and if we if I still have one thought at the end, I'll throw it in. First of all, number one, the visual palette of that movie, you know, it's in the exact same era of Fincher's Seven and um, um, Fight Club. Like yeah, that exactly. was that was for a period of time 
the cool visual palette of everything. Advertising movies. It wasn't, in fact, I would say that it got upended by the by Apple's iPod campaign, turning everything white and cleaner. But that that sort of it's not sepia. I don't know what it is. It's a little I think it's, bit. It, it's cross processed. I'm pretty sure. Okay. I'm pretty sure they they're taking this film and, pro- and processing to make it greener. Right. Uh, and exactly. that's with the kind of the the Matrix world, like kind of the initial part of the movie. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so right. So uh, rewatching that now, it, that strikes me. It's so of its time. And it is of its time, you know, we just got done saying how 1998, 1999 was like, man, everything's possible. But then again, remember, this is a generation, Generation X, that also was brought up on cyberpunk, that was brought up on dystopian uh, science fiction. So this was, Star Wars is literally a fucking space opera that, you know, good guy. So this was the sort of science fiction that we deserved that our generation deserved <laughs> in 1999 so that it felt real it felt like yeah man the web is transforming everything man we're, we're, we're living these virtual worlds and stuff like that but it was totally colored by the how we were brought up to expect not rocket pats rocket packs sorry or flying cars but to expect a dystopian hellscape, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, like, that's my second overriding thought. But my main overriding thought about The Matrix is, first of all, and, and I'm not saying that I'm an expert or anything, but I was a film major. Uh, I, I, I technically an English degree with a screenwriting uh, concentration. So I, you know, went to school to think about these things. I maintain that as a story the the first matrix movie is perfect in the sense that you create um a set of rules for a universe and you don't break those rules and you pay them off right mm-hmm. and the the matrix is so sad as a series because i listen the, the logic the internal logic of that first matrix movie there's not a bad there's not a, a, a um a foul beat in there there's and and there's almost no extraneous scenes. Everything serves the internal logic that the screenplay set up, that the story set up, and the the way they went off the rails was absurd to me. All you got to do, if you want to do a trilogy based off that first movie, okay, get the humans out of the matrix. That's it. Right. That's all you right. had to do. Open the pods. <laughs> it would. And listen, you can in, introduce complications into that. You can do it in, as a trilogy. And mm-hmm. but that's all you had to do, man. And I, you know, again, I'm not saying I'm a screenwriting genius, but man, they really dropped the ball on that because literally all they had to do was get the humans out of the matrix, and they turned it into something. And I was looking at the, sorry, one more thing, and then I'll let you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I was looking at the uh, the chronology of this on IMDb. So 1999, the Matrix comes out. That's the same year that the first Star Wars prequel comes out, right? Mm-hmm. And so, listen, believe me, this is another thing. I was there. A lot of people at the time did not admit at the beginning that the Star Wars prequels were bad because I was in bitter fights with people that I was like, open your eyes. This is fucking bullshit. But but there was also people like me that could see from day one that, that the Star Wars prequels were bad. And so The Matrix was like this crazy promise of, okay, wait, okay, this is great sci-fi uh, you know, great movie making, and this can be done right. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm so pissed that the Matrix trilogy sucks. Um, 
And then, but but then you know the Star Wars prequels suck for a similarly simple way. All you had to do to make the the Star Wars prequels good, love triangle. It because mm-hmm. all you got to do is I don't know who screws over who, but but clearly Obi Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker both fall in love with the same girl. I don't know who is you know. Maybe they were married. Someone was married, and then they end up fathering Luke and Leia by the other person or whatever. But all you had to do was a love triangle that, and then all those sort of knowing looks from from Ben Kenobi in in Star Wars: A New Hope would make so much sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, um, that's Darth Vader's complete motivation. He you know he loved this woman, but uh, whatever it was, simple love triangle. Same thing with the Matrix. Man, all you had to do just get the the humans out of the out of the Matrix. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's I you know my memory of the other movies is almost nil, right? There's I some cool them. things in the other. There's some cool scenes. There's some cool characters, but they are as narratively incoherent as the Star Wars prequel. Yeah, well, like it's like uh, my recollection was it was a lot of set pieces. It's like okay, let's have a 27 mm. minute slow mo fight now or whatever, because we can because bullet time was a cool thing. Even though the bullet time in the actual original movie is maybe right 30 seconds or yeah. something. Mm-hmm. It's it's so sparingly done that when it happens, it's a big deal. And then it's sort of, I don't know. There's a thing to be said for restraint in special effects, I guess. Well, but I'm but, also making the argument there's a there's an argument to be made for restraint in, in your storytelling. In the plot. Right, because <laughs> they, they went crazy metaphysical. They went literally, um, I am an undergraduate philosophy major. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And again, they didn't need to. And, and yeah. you know, I don't know. Maybe it was well, hubris. Maybe they believe right. that they're on press, that they're, they're these filmmaking geniuses. But it wasn't necessary. Yeah. Like, even if, some, again, I would say that some of the ideas that they think of, because they're, maybe what they were thinking is, yeah, we are talking about computing. We are talking about the future. So we're going to go crazy philosophical about this and and try to examine what the real relationship of identity and, and consciousness is and stuff. And, I, well, all I can tell you is clearly they were not qualified to do that. And also, <laughs> just get the humans out of the Matrix. Yeah. Well, you can make your own fan uh, fan film, I'm sure. I Listen, they reboot things all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, clearly uh, there, you can make an argument for the, the Tim Burton Batmans, are, but they're a completely different thing than the most recent Batmans. And the coming up Batman looks horrible. Batman versus... Whatever. I, I think I really hope that there's a day when when Disney will say, "Listen, we're going to throw out of the canon the prequels for Star Wars," yeah, and that someone will come along of a completely different generation, maybe ten years from now, and be like, "Listen, uh, listen to me on this podcast. The first Matrix is perfect. Just continue with the narrative logic of the first Matrix and make a good movie and reboot it that way. It's that simple." I have one more thought. Okay, I think it's related to what you've already said. It's not plot related, really. But I do think, to me, the biggest underlying reason that The Matrix was so fascinating, aside from it looked cool and it, you know, spoke to what I wanted to, how I wanted to be. I wanted to be like a hacker guy and Mm -hmm, stuff. mm -hmm. Is that it is literally a tale of cyberspace made real. Like we had this idea of of cyberspace, of a, a, another space within computers mm-hmm. and a, a life that involved living kind of inside and among and aided by computers all right. the time, but yet right. still relying on people. And this is a very literal approach to that. Like, okay, yep, we're all living in a computer right now. 
in some other stuff and everybody wears cool trench coats and leather for some reason or whatever. And I think that that the approach to just saying uh, cyberspace is real mm-hmm. and here's here's what it looks like was mm-hmm. so exciting. Yeah, and I, it was. And, yeah, right? Because so if, if you go to like from the early 90s, the very beginning of the, of the decade, to have effects like Jurassic Park where you sort of start to realize, oh, wow, computer effects and movies are getting really good to like Toy Story in the middle where, where you're like, hmm, they're, they're really getting quite good to The Matrix and then into the rest of it. You start to realize that pretty soon virtual reality or something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. something visually immersive has to be coming soon. And to think that you were living in a simulation feels really realistic, really possible, right? Tantalizingly possible. You know what? Possible. It's weird because it feels... You're, I think you're 100% right in that, like, that's the, the the exciting, tantalizing thing about it. But you know what's weird about that, about making uh, cybernetic living real, is it doesn't it feel like a little dangerous and sexy like that's the thing about it is that if you believe in this whole cyberpunk thing you know and our dystopian futures but like that is the weird that's what cyberpunk is is it it feels um sexy yeah 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 no it really does and i you know even though the term cyberpunk is it's actually really quite old by the time this movie comes out right it's we're finally seeing it realized. Like we have people who look kind of like punks, right? Because right? Neuromancer isn't that like 1984? I think. Yeah, it's yeah, early 80s, yeah. 82, 80 something like that. Yeah. yeah. William Gibson's uh, novel Neuromancer starts the cyberpunk movement. If anyone wants to Google or Wikipedia that, go on. Yeah. Anyway, I just I felt like that it, it again speaks to like you know a generation having. Uh, kind of an anxiety and I'm a little bit obsessed with with generations who are into apocalypse and so we had all these apocalyptic movies and by the way right before I watched The Matrix last night I rewatched for the umpteenth time Blade Runner Mm. and so a a weird double feature to be sure but also Blade Blade Runner a movie with um, green phosphorus you know on screens Um, it's always raining it's always dark Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. some some parallels there probably a better made movie uh in a lot of ways, but you know, kind of like, I, I feel like these things are all talking in the same space. You've got these movies yeah. like Terminator and anyway, it's basically like watch out cause we're going to make AI and that's going to be a problem. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, yeah. So like having just watched, you know, the thing with replicants and stuff and then seeing this notion that like, it's not quite the same thing, but it's a similar idea uh, that the world is now pretty much ruined. Um, really deeply i think that that's another kind of uh some people and i'm probably one of them have this this tendency to think that you know post-apocalyptic stuff is fascinating and kind of titillating but also the idea that you can kind of thrive during that is part of what's so sexy because you're literally the last couple of people on earth who are kind of free and you're sort of saving your humanity from being yeah subsumed into this Borg-like something. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, the sort of oddly, the odd illogic of farming humans for food doesn't really hold up, but it does. It just ju- it makes just enough sense to say, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, okay, sure, okay, just giant towers of people in pods. That's probably, like, if you don't have photosynthesis, I guess that's fine. But I, was, mm-hmm. I turned mm-hmm. to my wife and said, like, wouldn't they just use, like, geothermal, you know? Like, <laughs> right, there's yeah. other easier ways to get electricity. <laughs> but, yeah, I suppose. Well, whatever. And also, if, if the computers are this advanced, I mean, they can clearly put satellites up that can harvest. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, you know what? Anyway. This is final thought, because I, I, I mm-hmm. need to go, actually. But um, 
you made me think of this too. This is always my argument about um, about how um, computers becoming conscience, conscious conscious um, is misrepresented in in movies and, and books and things like that. And I, I understand why they do it in movies, but you always see that a robot gains consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, it, it's not going to be a robot. It's going to be these mesh. It's going to be the cloud that becomes conscious. And so Terminator 2 got it right. Or Terminator yeah, and Terminator 2. Right. It's Skynet. It's Skynet becomes self-aware, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that is how <laughs> that is how computers will be. It's not going to be some cute robot or some sexy robot like that recent uh, movie that I very much enjoyed. The name is Escaping, Oh, Ex Machina. Right? Ex Machina, yeah. But yeah. it's not going to be one machine. It's not going to be one data. The The way that computers will become self-aware is because it'll be the network that becomes self-aware. It'll be all of our computers. You know, mm-hmm. it, it'll be a neural net becoming real, essentially. Yeah, your phone will turn against you and yes. all phones. Yes, and your car and yes, yes, yes. And <laughs> that makes me think of, have you ever seen that, um, that there's Stephen King's only movie that he directed? Uh, again, I don't know the name. I'll put it in the show notes. But it oh, is, is this like Death Race or something? Yeah, well, is it a truck? Well, is one of right, those truck? Okay, goes anything crazy that is movies? A, anything that is a machine becomes self aware and starts to kill <laughs> human beings, right? Um, and so the human being, yeah, cars are trying to kill people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's funny that actually now that is our <laughs> that is a true potential mm-hmm. dystopia mm-hmm. is that our driverless cars and our cell phones and our uh, Internet-aware uh, refrigerators will eventually become self-aware and kill us all, and that is how <laughs> we should end this And episode. you know what? Kids these days don't even know how to drive an automatic. <laughs> well, listen, I don't so know how to weird. drive an automatic, and I never want to know. Uh, um, Chris, I want to know, is there anything that you're working on right now that you would like to tell us about, any of the films or anything coming up? Um, what do you yeah. want to tell us about? I have a, a call for action in case anybody else out there wants to participate. I am making a film on accessibility in the web about how people with disabilities or different abilities use the web using assistive technologies. And I've interviewed people with visual disabilities, and I would like to get an interview with somebody who is using a switch or some other uh, sort of physical device like that. So at the moment, I'm looking for interviewees, uh, ideally in the Pacific Northwest, although I will be in Denver for Access and Higher Ground, showing a rough cut in November. Um, I'm looking for people who want to talk about uh, being on the web and either designing for accessibility or using the web, um, you know, effectively with assistive technology or whatever you do to make it work. Mm -hmm. And I've got uh, something like eight people who I've already talked to, but I'm looking for people who can show us different modalities of excessive, access, sorry, accessible technology, assistive technology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, to get in touch with you would be find you on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter at Chris Higgins, C-H-R-I-S-H-I-G-G-I-N-S. I am verified, which is super cool. Uh, did not deserve that, but it happened. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, or my website, chrishiggins.com. There's a contact form there. It's not super usable, but it gets to me. Um, and other than that, I'm on Instagram as Instablah, and, and I post a lot of cat pictures and stuff. You're still uh, writing for uh, Mental Floss? Yep. I'm doing a lot of Mental Floss stuff on the weekends these days. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's where you, my, my primary output right now is Mental Floss and secret documentaries that you'll find out about early next year. Mm, I can't wait. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, uh, thank you. And until next time. Thank you, Brian. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. 
there's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.